you would, please open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 23, and we'll be looking at verses 39 to 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. I almost texted uh, Tracy McKenzie this morning. He's not here this morning. I almost texted him. I knew he was going to be out of town. I almost texted him. Uh, I'm going to miss your amens from last week. (laughs) And uh, that calls me to, to think and want to express to you that there, there should be an amount of freedom for us to be who we are. Uh, and, and so if that means you raising your hands when you worship the Lord Jesus, if that means you saying amen. So I, I, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago where we sang, Behold Our God, and I wanted to shout. And I didn't shout. I wanted When, when the words say, um, who... something to the effect of who can do the things that God does. I wanted to shout, nobody, nobody can even come close. And I didn't shout. I wanted to express to you just that you you have the freedom to be yourself. Now, of course, we want to have a certain order to things as as the scripture calls us to. But you should be encouraged to be yourself in responding to God in praise. So if if that's not you, then don't do that. You know, some of you, you might worship God uh, more in your own personality by sitting quietly, by closing your eyes as, as you hear the word proclaimed, and, and that is good and helpful as well. just wanted to encourage you in that. Let me pray before we get into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We cannot live without it. We cannot live without you. And so we pray that you would feed us by it, that you would accomplish all your purposes through it, through it as it is proclaimed this morning. I pray that you would hide me behind your word and hide me behind Christ, who is crucified for sinners. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the week before last Friday was a special one-year anniversary. You may have forgotten it. It was the day, maybe some of you know about it, it was the day that the dress went viral on the internet. Do you remember that? Uh, A woman was attending a wedding and she posted a picture of her dress on social media and there was this huge disagreement about what colors the dress was. So there were some who said the color is black and blue. It's clearly a black and blue dress. And then others saw the same exact picture. They could be in the same room. We did it with my family. And I saw black and blue, and a family member saw uh, gold and white. So weird. Do you remember that? Well, after the internet debate, it came to light that the dress was, in fact, black and blue. And yet some people still doubted it. Maybe you're still doubting it. You think it was gold and white. They refused to believe it. Now, of course, that's kind of a silly illustration. But it does cause us to think about how different our perspectives can be on having the same facts, having the same picture. How different our perspectives can be and how passionately we can hold them. Two people can look at the exact same information and come to completely different conclusions. Why are there such different perspectives on politics, for instance, in the midst of this heated political climate, on global affairs, on how to run a business, on what decisions to make about one's future, about marriage, about... All kinds of things. But here's where I want us to land. Consider how two people can hear the same message of Christ crucified for sinners 
and one walks away completely unaffected and the other's life is changed forever. Why are there such different perspectives on this man who is called Jesus? And we see this contrast in our text for this morning. So follow along as I read Luke 23, 39 to 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. May God ask, May God bless the reading and preaching of His Word by His Holy Spirit. Our theme for this morning is this, because Jesus sacrificed Himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, He can welcome even the worst of sinners into the kingdom of God. Because Jesus sacrificed Himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, He can welcome even the worst of sinners into His kingdom. The emphasis here in this text is Jesus' power and willingness to save sinners and the response of faith that is required of sinners if they are to see salvation. So I have a few aims today. But the chief aim is that every one of us would behold the glorious Christ in all of His meekness, in all of His humility, in all of His meekness, His blood-stained brow, brow, blood flowing from His hands and feet inside, that we would see this Jesus as the most beautiful thing in all the world. Because it is here, in Christ's work for His people, that we have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So if you are an unbeliever, it is my sincere hope and prayer that you will hear and believe that Christ is your only hope for salvation because He is your only hope for salvation. And if you are a Christian, my aim is that you might rejoice in and rest in this great salvation God has provided for you in Christ. And and with that in mind, you would pursue with greater urgency, with greater heartfelt passion, the salvation of sinners through proclaiming this message of Jesus who died for us. Now my aim every week is to preach Christ crucified for sinners, no doubt. But I've taken a special joy as we are leading up to Resurrection Sunday, focusing in on these words of Christ as he hung on the cross. You can see it more beautifully than ever. That this is... The center of all of Scripture. This is what flowed, leading. This is what God had planned from the very beginning would flow into this climax of Christ dying for sinners. Now you'll notice in our text these two thieves, these two criminals, and their responses. From a distance, we can only see the three men hanging on crosses, their heads are turning. You see their lips moving as they are speaking to one another. But in this passage, it's as if. Luke takes the camera lens and zooms it in on them. These three dying men. The noises fade in the background and we can hear 
their words to one another. Just what an amazing glimpse Luke gives us of these three criminals hanging on the cross. One criminal has words of contempt and anger. But the words of the other criminal reveal a humble faith in Jesus in really the most unexpected circumstances. Two criminals who are similar in their crimes and their punishments, but very different perspectives of who this man is hanging between them. So we're going to look at these three different people to examine our text together. So we'll look at criminal number one, criminal number two, and though he's not a criminal, we could call it criminal number three because he suffered and died as a criminal. We read about criminal one in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He repeats this same insult at Jesus that has been thrown at him a few times already. It's a mocking sort of insult. You say that you are the Messiah. There's a sign over your head that says you are the king of the Jews. Now, if you really are, why don't you save us? Save yourself and save us. Now, notice what it appears he's doing here. He has seen Jesus uh, carrying his cross He's carried his cross perhaps alongside of Jesus. He has heard the insults of the soldiers, of those around. He sees the blood and the wounds all over Jesus' body. And here he is hanging on the cross beside Jesus, near the end of his own life. And what does he do? He insults him as well. This criminal, like those who nailed Jesus to the cross, is spiritually blind. He's blinded to the truth of who Jesus is. That's what we considered last week. As Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. This man doesn't understand what he's seeing. It looks like foolishness to him, for surely if the Messiah was hanging on that cross next to him, he would call down a legion of angels and destroy all of his enemies. See, criminal number one is doubting Jesus unless he, unless he gets some sort of visible sign that he indeed is the Messiah. He is demanding a sign. You see the anger and the ridicule. Prove who you are, Jesus. Prove it by saving yourself and by saving us. But you see, he's also a, a representation of every human by nature. Because of our own sinful nature, men and women do not naturally believe what God says. We want some sort of sign to believe God. We want some sort of proof that He is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do. But He has given us signs, hasn't He? There's the creation without and the moral law within. Every good thing on this earth is meant to reflect the glory of God. So our children are learning this in their catechism class. Who made you? God made me. Why did God make you? To glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. We know these things because of what has been made. But the scripture tells us we suppress this truth and unrighteousness. We don't like it naturally because we don't want anyone or anything to get in the way of our own happiness. We don't want anyone to be in authority over us or tell us what we should and shouldn't do. And Christian, don't you know, notice this tension within you still sometimes? 
This is what makes it so difficult to commit to and submit to a church family. It's difficult. We don't like it. Our natural and sinful instincts rebel against it. About uh, Rebel against co- committing to one another in such a way that we submit to one another in, in love. But this is what we need, brothers and sisters. But take note of this, something I picked up from Pastor Sinclair Ferguson on this passage. Notice that this man who dies with such close physical proximity to Jesus is yet in eternity away from him. All he had to do was look to Jesus with eyes of faith and he would be saved. He was so close, yet he was so far away. So friends, in the hearing of this message preached right now, Christ is close He is closed. His spirit is near because his church has gathered and his word is being proclaimed. But it is possible for you to be so close to the preached word and his body, the church, and yet spend eternity separated from him. So won't you draw near to him in faith? Draw near to him in faith. See him with eyes of faith, won't you come to Christ who is displayed before you as crucified for sinners? And maybe you're not sure what that means. Maybe you're, you're unsure what would that mean for me to come to Jesus in faith? Well, the next person we're going to examine shows us exactly what it looks like. Criminal one rejects Jesus and rejects faith, but criminal two gives us an anatomy of conversion what conversion looks like. And we could summarize this, I think, by the Reformation truth. This is what this criminal does. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Such a simple phrase, and yet so profound and important for us to recall over and over again. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's take a moment to consider this second criminal look at his words from verses 40 to 42 the other criminal rebuked him don't you fear god he said since you are under the same sentence we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve but this man has done nothing wrong and then he said to jesus jesus remember you remember me when you come into your kingdom now notice the contrast in these two responses One responds with bitterness and the other with humility. One rejects the truth and this man receives it. But notice what this man's conversion looks like. Notice these four actions in particular that he takes. Number one, the sinner recognized his own guilt. He recognized his own guilt. He says to the other criminal, we are suffering justly. We're getting what our sins deserve. This is what we get for what we have done. We're simply paying the penalty for our crimes. Now rarely do you hear someone speak like this. I know there are examples of both sides. There are some who are serving time in prison or paying some penalty who admit that this is what they deserve. But what you often hear are complaints of injustice. Complaints that one's punishment is too severe. Complaints that I'm not getting what I deserve or I'm getting something I don't deserve. And we all do this, don't we? We often aren't able to confess our sins and admit what it is that we deserve. 
But this is what a part of conversion looks like. Coming to faith in Jesus means that you first recognize and repent of your own sinfulness. That you understand your guilt. You must recognize that you have sinned and you deserve punishment for your sin. You remember, I'm sure, the story that Jesus tells of the religious man and the sinner who come to God in prayer. One prayed, Thank you, God, that I am not like all these other sinners. And he makes a list of all of the good things that he does to the praise and glory of God. But the sinner, ashamed of himself and of his sin, prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this man, rather than the religious man, went home with the favor of God, Jesus tells us. Now, what was the difference between the two men? They both were sinners in need of mercy. But the sinner alone recognized his own guilt. He recognized that he deserved punishment, so he cast himself on the mercy of God. Notice what else this criminal recognized. He recognized his own guilt, but he also recognizes the innocence of Jesus. He recognizes Jesus' innocence. Verse 41, we are punished justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now in all his words, I don't think the criminal knew just how truly he was speaking. From his vantage point, He couldn't find any fault with Jesus. Perhaps he had seen or heard about the mockery of a trial. He had heard about the charges that were brought against Jesus. And yet everything about him pointed to his goodness, to his innocence, to his righteousness. But this man spoke truly not only from his own perspective. He spoke truly from a heavenly perspective. For as the father looked down upon the son, surely the same was true of him. That was true of him when he was baptized. Do you remember? The father said, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Not only had Jesus done no wrong according to Jewish or Roman law, he had done no wrong according to the holy law of God. The law of God summed up is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, all the law and prophets hang. And the, ma- the amazing thing is that Jesus had done it. Had fulfilled every portion of God's law. Had fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Jesus loved God with all of his being, heart and soul, 100%, and loved his neighbor more than he loved himself. And yet here he is hanging on a cross as a common criminal. No more than that, hanging on the cross as one who was cursed by God. As one who deserved punishment from God. But this is the way it had to be. You see, the innocence of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, is what guarantees our forgiveness. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In the criminal's words, we hear not only his own guilt and Jesus' righteousness, our minds are drawn to the spiritual realm in which we learn that Christ died as a substitute for sinners, that he takes on the sins of his people on the cross, and that he imputes to them his own righteousness. 
So God foretells in the prophet Isaiah, My righteous servant will justify man, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He recognized his own guilt, Jesus' innocence, And he also recognizes, third, Jesus' person and work. He recognized who Jesus was, his identity. And at least to a point, he recognized what Jesus had come to do. So we see this in the criminal's request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Criminal 1 said, if you really are the Messiah. And criminal 2 says, you really are a king and one day you will establish your kingdom. This past week, I had a chance of meeting, by chance, yeah, right, right, by chance, uh, with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses that were coming through my neighborhood. This was Friday, and they gave me a little pamphlet, and do you know what verse it had written on it? Luke twenty three forty three. You will be with me in paradise. Uh, so we talked some about the correct translation and interpretation of this verse, and we discussed some of our differences, but I didn't really want to spend too much time on those translation issues, on those interpretation issues. I saw them as side issues. So I went immediately almost to where I knew our, our big, biggest disagreement would be. I said, our most fundamental difference, wouldn't you agree, our most fundamental difference rests on the identity of Jesus Christ. And they agreed. It does. You say that he's the Son of God, but only a man. We Christians, however, say that he is the Son of God, the eternal God, from everlasting to everlasting, who has come down in human flesh, fully divine and fully human, one person, with two natures, without beginning and without end. You see, when you, you're thinking about Jesus dying on the cross for sinners, it's very important that you know who you're talking about. If Jesus is a mere human being attempting to die on the cross for other humans, then you have a big problem. How could one man, even a perfect man, pay For sinful humanity on the cross. How could his sacrifice ever be enough? How could his substitute be effective for the many? It was the heretic Arius who wrongly said, There was a time when the Son was not. So he maintained, like our current day Jehovah's Witness friends, that Jesus is not the eternal God. And yet Athanasius opposed him. Because the Jesus that he knew, he knew, the Jesus he knew redeemed him could not be anything less than God himself, he says. In order to pay for the sins of humans, Christ had to be human, yes. But in order to pay the exorbitant price that was owed, he had to be divine. This is the identity of Jesus. Dying on the cross for sinners. God giving of himself. For those he created. 
Now, it's not clear that the criminal knew all of this, but take note of what he did know. Christ was a king who one day would fully establish his kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this, too, is the criminal's expression of faith. He not only recognizes all these things, he essentially is asking Jesus for for mercy by saying, Remember me, Lord Jesus, remember me. And so the sinner not only recognizes his own guilt and Jesus' innocence and his righteous work on the cross, he recognizes and asks Jesus for mercy. This was the criminal's have mercy on me moment. And I'll just say this and move on. You can know all about your own guilt and all about Jesus' innocence. You can know about his identity, his person, his work on the cross for sinners. You can know all of this and yet never cling to him in faith. May it never be. Ask him for mercy. Cling to him in faith. Now, I spent a lot of time on criminal two, so I'll move along quickly now. Criminal three is no criminal at all, of course. But he was treated as a criminal. He was judged as a common criminal. Even worse, he received no fair trial at all. And he was crucified as a criminal. We've already seen his, identity, his innocence, his identity, and his work. But here I want you to see his willingness to receive sinners. The sinner asks, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers in verse 43, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I almost wish I could have been there to see the response on that man's face when Jesus said that. What comfort. What assurance he must have received. He asked simply to be remembered. And Jesus answers with more than he could have ever thought or expected. Remember you? Remember you? I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And to you who come to him in simple faith. You don't know all the details of theology, but you know Jesus. You know the God-man, the Savior who died in your place. To you, he gives the same assurance of acceptance into his kingdom. It's because he gave his life, the righteous in place of the unrighteous, that he willingly accepts even the worst of sinners into his kingdom. Perhaps you're in a situation even now and you're praying, Jesus, remember me. In the midst of your sorrows and trials, you are crying out for help, like the psalmist who cried, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever, he says? How long will you hide your face from me? The psalmist, it seems, is tempted to think that he has been forgotten because of what he was going through. But remember this, brothers and sisters. Those who cling in faith to Christ, he not only remembers you, he loves you deeply. And He is with you and He will be with you to the very end. And then when the end comes, you will be with Him forever in paradise. Friends, this is a great assurance. What a great assurance Jesus gives to sinners here. To the thief on the cross, one who had committed heinous crimes. To the chief of sinners, He says, Today you will be with Me in paradise. Now I ask you, if God has such mercy on such a sinner as Him, Will he not also give great mercy to any who come to him in faith?
he will. So come to him and receive him. So that's three criminals and you thought I was done, but I have one more person I want you to consider in this story. He's absent from the words, but he is present in the details. This conversion of criminal number two is very mysterious. Did you notice how mysterious it was? At first, he was mocking Jesus along with the others. Along with the other soldiers, along with the other one who was crucified with them. And yet somewhere along the way, he begins to see Jesus for who he really is. At one point, he sees Jesus as foolishness. And the next, he sees him as his only hope for salvation. How do we explain this sudden change of heart? How do, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this complete change in his perspective? We make sense of it by understanding what's at the heart of it. Here's what I mean. is that God is absolutely sovereign in the conversion of sinners. Why did one criminal reject Christ when the other received him? Why does your neighbor Joe reject Christ and your neighbor John reject turns to Christ in faith? Why does anyone come to have spiritual life when we are all spiritually dead? It is only by the sovereign work of grace in one's heart that he will ever come to treasure Jesus Christ. It says Jesus says to Nicodemus, do you remember that encounter? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here's a lesson for us. You never know who, you never know how, you never know when the Spirit might be pleased to settle down in the space of someone's heart. You never know who, you never know how, you never know when. God might be pleased to work faith in someone's heart. God saves the most unlikely of sinners. Exhibit A and B and C and D. Amen? The one you're thinking of right now, who you see as a bully, who is nasty and mean, who cares not a thing about spiritual matters, who is selfish beyond imagination... Perhaps who would never show up in church. Listen to this. You never know who might be saved by the Holy Spirit blowing wherever He wills. You don't know how it might happen. You don't know when it might happen. Because God is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of sinners. And it is all of grace. It is all of grace. But you do know this. The Spirit moves As this gospel is proclaimed. As Christ, who lived the life we should have lived, who died the death we should have died, and who was raised from the dead, as this Christ is proclaimed, the Spirit moves. And He saves sinners. So let's treasure this message. Let's treasure this message of Christ crucified for sinners. Let's treasure Christ and His work. But let us remember that this treasure is a treasure that was meant to be shared. So share it, brothers and sisters. Share this treasure far and wide with family and friends, with strangers, with those who it seems there is no hope they would be saved. 
Tell everyone you meet about this Christ who has mercy even on the worst of sinners. Let us pray together. Dear Father, we pray that you would help us to never get over this grace, this grace that saves even the worst of sinners. And as we consider perhaps people that we know who are broken, who are filled with bitterness toward Christ, who are filled with hatred and who have plunged themselves in sin and are are on the road to destruction, we pray that you would fill us with compassion and mercy and that you would fill us with the knowledge that Jesus loves to save sinners. We know, Lord, that you have chosen a people for yourself. And we know that you have been working ever since the beginning to redeem that people for yourself. And so we pray that your will would be done. Pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That you would be pleased to save sinners. People that we know. People even here today, Lord. You would be pleased to come down by your spirit and change hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.